a long time ago, back when my brother and I were a lot younger, I was 12 and he was about 19, and uh, we went out hiking on a hot summer's day up Pyramid Rock Trail on I-40 in New Mexico. And uh, he's the older one, so he should have been the wiser one. And we brought no water with us. Just a few hours under the beating sun, and we both became so thirsty. To the point where we were actually trying to eat grass which just clung to the back of your throat, and pick apart cactuses so that we, as we tried to find our way back to the road again, because, of course, we didn't take the trail either. But only water, not grass and cactuses, not grass and cactuses, only water could really quench our thirst. And when it comes to our spiritual needs, there is really only one thing that could quench our spiritual thirst, the spiritual grace and life that Christ provides. It is the only way that we can find true spiritual life. Apart from Christ, our good deeds, our attempts to find salvation and please God on our own are as desperate and fruitless as eating grass and cactus to rehydrate. There is only one source of salvation, and it quenches our need once and for all. Recently in John, we've uh, seen Jesus discuss the need for salvation with one of the elite religious leaders of Israel. We, We heard him talk to Nicodemus recently. Now in John 4, we'll see him go beyond accepted boundaries in his culture, and break through social prejudices, offering himself as the true source of salvation, life, and worship to all people, even the lowliest of outcasts. Now, according to verse 1 of John chapter 4, Jesus had heard that the Pharisees were starting to take notice of his work that he was doing. They had heard that his disciples were baptizing more people than John the Baptist, probably to avoid attracting too much undue attention from them at this point and to avoid the appearance that he's competing with John the Baptist. We're told that he headed to Galilee. And on the way, he had to pass through Samaria. Now, why did he have to. Well, some take it that this is the Holy Spirit compelling him, but we also know that Jews had to frequently travel that way. Even though they really didn't like going through Samaria, it was the only reasonable route to get where you needed to go, to go through the place that you really didn't like and around the people that nobody really liked. Either way, whatever's going on here, there is a divine appointment ahead that we're going to see. Now, if we recall the events of the Old Testament, if we look back at the big picture of the Old Testament, the kingdom of Israel was divided, as you can see on this map, between the green and the purple, divided after the reign of King Solomon. And it left two different nations, the northern kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom of Israel, also known as Judah. 
Now, when the northern kingdom was judged by God because of their disobedience, the Assyrian Empire carried most of them off into captivity. But the Israel, some Israelites were left behind up there. And the Assyrians moved in foreigners who settled among them and intermarried with them. Now, when the southern Jews, Israelites from the south, returned from their own exile, they viewed these remnants of their northern cousins as half-breeds. Not Israelites, not Gentiles, but something in between. And while the northerners still carried on some of the traditions of Israel in, in worship, the Jews viewed it as corrupted and tainted by paganism. And within time, the name of that northern region came to be known as Samaria, where our story picks up today. And these descendants of mixed background only embraced the first five books of the New Testament, or the Old Testament. Only the first five books as their scriptures, and they ended up erecting their own temple on Mount Gerizim. A different temple than what was in Jerusalem to worship Yahweh. Now, as you can imagine, that led to quite a bit of animosity between the Samaritans in the north and the Jews in the south. But here we find Jesus in Samaria, the place that Jews disdained at the town of Sychar. Something is certainly afoot. Verse 5 tells us Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour or around noon. And a woman from Sychar, or from Samaria, came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now in chapter 3, Jesus, we saw him speaking alone with Nicodemus, a man, a Jew, a religious leader in Israel, all the things that got you good status in that society. Now he strikes up a conversation with someone who is the complete opposite of Nicodemus. But both these people from totally different ends of society have the same need. He had met with Nick at night, and now he comes into contact with someone in the heat of the day who has a few things going against her at that time. She's a woman in a society that does not look favorably on women. She's a Samaritan, and she's a social exile. Now, she had come there to draw water, and it likely during the hottest part of the day because she was an outcast trying to avoid people. And there she found a Jewish man sitting beside the well who looks at her and asks her for a drink of water. Now, she's a little taken aback by this that a Jewish man is talking to her, a Samaritan woman, something that would have been 
outside the social norms and racial prejudices of his people. She knew that to Jews, Samaritans were unclean. D.A. Carson, the Bible scholar, notes that she does not know, she does not know that far from being defiled by what is unclean, Jesus sanctifies what he touches. Far from being defiled by what is unclean, people that are unclean, Jesus sanctifies what he touches. He provides spiritual cleansing. And he presses her further. If you knew the gift of God and who it, wa- who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, and as did his sons and his livestock. So just like with Nicodemus, she doesn't understand who he is and what he has to offer her. She does not know the gift of God, Jesus says, that the salvation that he offers. If she did she would ask him for what he calls living water. Now that expression could have two levels of meaning. She takes it to mean that he's talking about running fresh water. And that was actually the type of water that fed that well. There was an underground spring that completely, uh, constantly replenished that well. And she looks at him, she's like, what are you talking about? You have no bucket, sir. But he means far more than the woodenly literal level that she is thinking on. He is speaking about something spiritual. Now, we can look to the Old Testament to find insight into this phrase about living water. In Jeremiah 2.13, the Lord had said, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that could hold no water. His people had turned away from him in the Old Testament, from the goodness and the life that he alone could provide for them spiritually. And they sought their own way. They had hewed out cisterns for themselves. They had tried to find spiritual life for themselves without him. But their own ways were cracked, unable to sustain goodness and spiritual life. Living water here is a metaphor for God's grace and the eternal life that he provides. If you're filling in blanks in your notes... God's grace and the eternal life that he provides. That's what we're talking about when we come across the phrase living water. Jesus is saying that he could provide that living water. He could provide eternal life through grace. Now, in an arid land, the imagery of water, the imagery that water evokes is kind of hard to overlook. 
water was life in Israel. And to find a spring of living water that continued to replenish itself meant that life could be sustained in a harsh environment. Now, I would venture to guess that most of us are used to having water piped in on tap. Growing up on the reservations, I would see many people who lived out so remotely that they had to haul giant water tanks on the back of their trucks just to provide for any single one of their water needs at home. When you live that way, with water being such a precious commodity, every single drop becomes valuable. In ancient Israel, water was a big, big deal. It was the difference between life and death. So we could easily understand why it became such an important biblical image for salvation in the spiritual life that could only be found in God. Without Him, there was spiritual drought, broken cisterns, spiritual death. But the Samaritan woman is thinking only on a physical level and not the spiritual level. She thinks he's talking about the running spring water that feeds the well. And, of course, he doesn't have anything to access it by. He didn't bring a bucket. So she asks if he's better than Israel's great ancestor, Jacob, who tradition had said had dug that well. And, of course, the implied answer is he is greater than Jacob. Verse 13 continues, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, clearly, what he has to offer her is greater than what she's thinking. He isn't offering natural water, but referring to spiritual refreshment found in God, in his presence, in the cleansing of the spirit. This water will become, he says, to anyone that accepts it, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, this is an allusion to the Old Testament imagery of the Holy Spirit being poured out, bringing new relationship with God that Jesus alone can offer. Physical water does not quench forever. You have to keep going back and getting more. God in the salvation that is offered in Christ quenches our spiritual need once and for all. God and the salvation he offers quenches our need for spiritual life once and for all. When you're given that by the Spirit, it's a one-time deal. It doesn't dry up. It doesn't go away. It's there to stay. But of course, she's still not getting it right away. Verse 16 continues, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. Now, he suddenly seems to shift subjects, but he's doing something here. She's so focused on the physical needs that she's failing to see her spiritual needs. So he draws attention to her personal 
problems with this request. Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. She responds with a very blunted answer, probably trying to dodge her personal problems. And John shows us that Jesus, though, has supernatural knowledge because he's God. Without ever meeting her physically in person, he knows intimate details about her life, that she has had five husbands. Now, Jewish tradition of the time allowed for as many as three husbands. Three divorces were okay. But even that very loose standard, she had gone beyond. She not only went well above that number, but was now so accustomed to her marriage problems that she didn't even go through the ritual, the act of ritual marriage with her current guy. She opted for a common law marriage instead. She had tried to avoid mentioning her problems of her life, but had stumbled into the realm of truth anyway. And Jesus draws attention to his divine supernatural power, knowing everything about her life, while gently pointing out her need for spiritual renewal, for the life that he could provide, for living water. Now the conversation continues in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, she acknowledges that he's a prophet, a messenger from God with special insight. But she's still not getting the full picture of who he is. So she tests him with a point of theological disagreement between their two peoples. Which mountain was the correct one to worship at? The Jews had accepted the, old, the entire Old Testament. So worshiping in Jerusalem was the pretty obvious choice. But the Samaritans only accepted those first five books of the Old Testament. And Mount Gerizim was, of course, very important in those books. So that was where they worshipped. Bible scholar F.F. Bruce once said, There are some people who cannot engage in a religious conversation with a person of a different persuasion without bringing up points on which they defer. That's what she's doing. She wants him to give an answer. Who's right, us or you? Now, Jesus responds that the time or hour is coming when he dies and rises 
that they will worship the Father not on Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem. In a little while, it wouldn't matter. What's the better place to worship? Idlewild or Big Bear? California or New York? The United States? <laughs> the United States or China? Jesus says to her that the location would soon be irrelevant. He says, you, plural, y'all Samaritans, won't be required to worship in any special spot. Because the time had come to worship the Father in spirit and in truth. These are the standards of true worship. First, it is in spirit, meaning that it comes from spiritual life, Sorry, spiritual life from the Spirit. I think, are we missing a slide? Can you go to the next one? I, that might be my fault. Let me see. Nope, sorry. You're good. Okay. So the two, the two standards of true worship. First, it is in the Spirit, meaning that it, it, it comes from life from the Spirit. You have to be born again. Life from the Spirit. If you remember back to John 3, when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, he told him that eternal life is only possible if it comes from above, if it's given by the Spirit. Thus, true worship is in spirit. Second, it is based upon the truth. You have to know God in order to worship Him. And as we know in the Gospel of John, if you want to know the truth of God, you look at Jesus, God in flesh. He is the truth, which will be mentioned again in verse 26 here. Now, he does briefly address her question about who was right in this theological debate about the two mountains. The Samaritans worshipped what they didn't know. Because they rejected the the full revelation of God in the Old Testament, their worship was not characterized by truth and knowledge. They couldn't worship who they didn't know. But even though they had their own problems, the Jews at least knew who they worshipped because they accepted all of God's word. A relative of mine recently asked me for advice on how to respond to a friend of his who knowingly picked and chose from Scripture. This friend would even go so far as to say about Scripture that accepting God's Word wasn't necessary for having a relationship with Him. You could learn enough from God about nature, through nature. You don't need the Scriptures. Now, nature does reveal God's glory. We believe that. Scripture says that it's really only enough to condemn us. We have to accept what he has revealed about himself and salvation through the message of Scripture if we actually want to have a relationship with him and worship him. You have to accept the message of Scripture. You can't have a loving relationship with your spouse if you don't know who they are. If you think your spouse is a five foot two redhead when they're actually a six foot one brunette, that really isn't a relationship because you don't know who that person is. 
The Samaritans rejected God's special revelation, so they didn't truly know who they worshipped. But the location of worship was about to become irrelevant. The message of salvation had come through the Jews. The Jews had gotten it right, but it pointed to a time when all people would come to worship God. Everyone would have access to the truth and worship of God um, would be open to all. And the temples, which one you were at, would no longer matter. The place isn't the standard by which true worship is measured. The place isn't the standard by which true worship of God is measured. God is spirit, Jesus says, and therefore he is not bound by our limitations or location. He reveals himself to who he wants, where he wants, when he wants, and he doesn't play by rules of location, nation, tribe, language, race. He makes himself known by revealing the truth in his word. True worship is centered on God, not on a people group, a temple, or a place. To to truly worship, one one has to have new spiritual life given by the Spirit and has to have accepted the truth, the revelation of God. The authority of his teaching had had have to have gotten to her a little bit, get gotten her thinking. So uh, she pushed further to see if he if she was understanding this guy correctly. She said to him, "I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things." And Jesus said to her, "I who speak to you am he." Now this is a big claim. While they didn't accept the entire Old Testament, the Samaritans still understood that a chosen one, a redeemer was coming. Someone who would guide people in the truth. And Jesus tells her, it's me. The one Israel is hoped for, the promised redeemer, the one who could offer true eternal life to your soul, living water. He was there right in front of her. Now let's review what we've seen so far. Jesus reveals himself to her as the one who could provide living water, access to the saving grace and eternal life of God. And he's shown her that she needs that. She needs that. He's made it clear that God is making salvation accessible to anyone, no matter what people group or land they live in. And he's told her he is the Redeemer. It doesn't matter if she is a a Samaritan. She has a need that only he can provide for, for living water. It's only through him that true worship would spread beyond the walls of Jerusalem to anyone that accepted the gospel, who accepted him, the true temple. Jesus Christ, the true temple. Now the conversation is interrupted momentarily by the disciples who return and they're a bit startled that their rabbi is talking with a woman because of the prejudices of their day. 
verse 28 tells us that she left her water jar and completely forgot what she had come there for in the first place. And she went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out to went out of the town and they were coming to him. So she goes and tells her people. Now while the Samaritans are coming, responding to what she's told them, Jesus and his disciples have a little conversation, a little chat about reaching the lost. Now I won't get into verses 31 to, through 38 today. Then we're going to get into that next week. Tim's going to dive into that and handle that. Uh, passage in our next message but you could see where this idea ties in jesus has said that he's the way of salvation for anyone no matter what group of people or location that they're from and he's bringing about access to worshiping god to anyone who receives new spiritual life from the spirit and believes in his message and so as we'll step into next week we realize that God has a role for us to play in that. To play in the task of reaching all peoples. But we'll get into that more next week. For now, the Samaritan woman who was such a social outcast that she went to the well at the hottest part of the day just to avoid running into anyone is now going through the streets of her hometown announcing to the people that she has found the Messiah that this man knew everything about her. Now, we can imagine that there was a bit of skepticism and hesitation from the people in their town when they first saw who it was coming down the street shouting about a man. Oh, no, she's at it again. But her testimony still had an impact. Verse 39 says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him, Because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. She goes, she goes out and invites others to come and meet him. She testifies that he is omniscient, that he knows everything and has supernatural knowledge. And many believe because of her testimony. Now, at the beginning of our story, the woman couldn't believe that a Jewish man, that Jesus would speak to a Samaritan woman, But she has embraced him, and Jesus has embraced her and her people. They are not outside of his camp. He has gone into theirs. And while he stayed there, many more became believers because of his teaching while he was there with them. They got to see for themselves what this outcast woman had been saying about him. And let us not miss the final words of their testimony about him. We know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. 
Salvation came through the Jews, through their scriptures, through their ancestral lines, but it came through Jesus to everyone. Whether they were Jewish, Samaritan, Gentile, male, female, immoral, socially accepted, or outcast, he is the Savior of the world. Jesus offers himself as living water, access to God's grace and eternal life. He provides everyone, no matter what their background is, access to worshiping the Father. So what are our big takeaways from this today? Now, there are a few things we should pick up here. First and foremost, this passage teaches us about who Jesus is. We see him experience human weakness, getting tired at the very beginning of this story and needing to sit down and take a break because he is truly human. We see him exercise supernatural knowledge that is his own because he is God. That is why our doctrinal statement at IBC says, we teach that the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became man without ceasing to be God. Now, how that all works is a mystery that the Bible does not completely explain. He never stops being God, but he is truly human. He never loses his divine attributes, but adds our human weaknesses to his perfection. Now, as I've mentioned before, Paul doesn't say Christ empties himself of his deity in Philippians chapter 2. In Greek, when you say something is emptied, you, you could say that it is emptied by adding something of lesser value. Like a king who puts on beggar's robes over his kingly robes. Emptying by adding something of lesser value. This is the mystery of the incarnation. One man is the perfect mediator between God and man. He is the perfect mediator between God and humanity because he is the only one who is both fully God and fully man. He's the only one who could truly be the Messiah, the promised Savior of the world. Now that brings us to our need. That's who Jesus is. That brings us to our need. Without him, we have no spiritual life in and of ourselves. We can't access God. It is only through him that we find grace in eternal life. The spiritual grace and life that Christ provides is the only thing that can truly quench our spiritual thirst. It is the only way that we can find true spiritual life. But like the Samaritan woman, we have to recognize our need. There has to be a thirst. Apart from Christ, our good deeds, our attempts to find salvation and please God are as desperate and fruitless as my brother and I eating grass and cactuses trying to rehydrate. It won't work. There is only one source of salvation, Jesus. And he quenches our need once and for all. Finally, accessing the Father in worship is not about where you're from 
or what your background is. It's not about where you're from or what your background is. Eleven years ago, I was sitting down to lunch at college during missions conference at Moody Bible Institute, and missionaries were there for that week, for the missions conference week, from all over the world. It was lined up three days of speakers speaking about reaching our world with the gospel message. And I sat down to lunch at my usual table, and I was joined by a missionary rep from northern Africa. And as I began to talk to him, I found out that he served amongst a hostile Islamic culture. It certainly was not an easy place to live and share the gospel message. Then he asked me where I was from. So I told him, I'm from Gallup, New Mexico, where I've served alongside my parents as a missionary to the Navajo people. Now, a look of surprise came over his face. (coughs) I've been there, he said. And if there was one place God asked me to go that I would refuse, (laughs) it would be Gallup. It's a waste of time. Now, I have to admit, I was a little surprised and offended to hear of my hometown being talked about that way. But this man who lived halfway around the world in one of the most hostile places to the gospel on the planet held deep prejudices about my home community. Gallup was certainly a hostile place to the gospel. It was dirty. It's immoral. It's strange. And to him, it was a waste of time. Such sentiment should cause us to recoil. But if we truly stop and reflect on our own hearts, we might come to realize that we are sometimes guilty of similar prejudices. Prejudices like the Jews had for the Samaritans. We might have them even if we're unaware of them. But God doesn't really care where someone is from. His grace extends beyond social boundaries. Jesus seeks out the outcasts, the Samaritans, the immoral, the sinners. It doesn't matter if you're from Idlewild or Hemet, the ghetto or the nice country town, America or China. Everyone, everyone needs new spiritual life. If we want to access God, we all need that. Jesus offers that spiritual life to all people, no matter their background. No matter their race, their political affiliation, their past sins, or their social status, we all have a need. No matter how well off your background is, and only He can fill it. It doesn't matter if you are the religious elite like Nicodemus, or an immoral sinner like the Samaritan woman. The only way to worship the Father is in spirit and in truth. And you have to have new spiritual life and the knowledge of God that could only be found through His Son. This is what God desires. 
He doesn't limit you based on where you live, what your past is, what your race is, what your background is. God doesn't snub his nose at communities like we do. He doesn't find one place more appealing or attractive than another. At the end of the day, we are all wretched sinners in need of grace. There is only one source of grace and eternal life. And his name is Jesus, the true living water. He offers spiritual life and truth that allow us to come to the Father and worship. He's the only way. Embrace that. Remember that. Be like the Samaritan woman and offer it to others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that um, your son offers us access to worship you in spirit and truth, Lord, that we could have new spiritual life through him, the living water. Lord, that when we're left to our own ways, there's no hope, there's no life. We'll shrivel up and die, but you offer living water once and for all that completely quenches our spiritual need. Lord, help us to remember that without you, there is, there's nothing good in and of ourselves. No matter where we're from, what our background is, it all depends on you. Help us to have that humble gospel mentality as we interact with the world around us. Thank you, Lord grace you offer through your son. Praise in the name of him. Amen.